Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Security is not regional. Security is global. What happens in Europe matters for Asia. What happens in Asia matters for, for, for Europe. And today it's Ukraine. Tomorrow it can be Taiwan. So this is truly a joint effort by all NATO allies from both sides of the Atlantic. And I'm confident that all NATO allies will continue to deliver. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Donald Trump first ran for the U.S. presidency in 2016, promising to break away from politics as usual. If he wins again in 2024, could he break much more, including European national security and the North Atlantic alliance? After all, Trump says he would encourage Russia to attack NATO members that don't pay enough for defense. Is this a feeble joke or a strategic threat to peace in Europe? I'm Gavin Esler. And this is not a drill. Donald Trump was the future once. Can he be the future twice? And what would a second Trump presidency, Trump unchained, mean for European security? In a moment, we'll hear from Peter Apps, author of the critically acclaimed Deterring Armageddon, a biography of NATO. But first, Dr. Helene von Bismarck is a German historian, author and political commentator, and she joins us from Hamburg. Helene, how far does a second Trump presidency present problems for Europe in general? The most scary part of a Trump, second Trump presidency from a European perspective is that we don't know what it will mean. Trump is a very unpredictable person. And since European security very much depends on the US, um, having a completely unpredictable president is very worrying for, for Europe as a whole. I noticed that uh, a senior fellow at a German think tank, Benjamin Tallis, said that Trump could potentially undermine NATO's deterrence with a tweet. And we've already seen in his first presidency, he would tweet things and it would change you know, the entire conversation in the Western world. So that, that's actually quite serious, isn't it? 
um, European security depends on NATO. I mean, NATO is the bedrock of our security and on Article 5, which means that we all NATO members, not just the European ones, but especially the US, um, come to each other's defense if one of us is attacked. And what people in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe and especially in the Baltic states are currently worried about is uh, what could happen if Russia or Putin believes that we no longer mean it, or especially if the US no longer means it, if they're no, no longer fully committed to Article 5. The whole concept of uh, deterrence and of sticking together um, would be weakened in such a, uh, um, such a moment. I think it's really important to emphasize this is an absolute worst case scenario, and it would be an incredibly reckless thing for, uh, for Russia to do. But um, the German Minister of Defense, Boris Pistorius has recently given a statement saying that not now, but five to eight years from now, it is not impossible that Russia might try and attack a NATO state, especially if they succeed in Ukraine. And we have to start thinking in our own planning, in our own defense planning uh, about this worst case scenario to prevent it from happening. Can we talk a little bit about perhaps what could be some good news. I mean, Germany in particular, the Zeitenwender, the, the time shift, the change towards defence and so on. Is there a, a sense in which what Putin has done and the possibility of a Trump presidency has changed politics in Germany? And then we'll, we might get on to how it might have changed the, the European defence uh, programme as well. But it, it, this Zeitenwender, is that real? Is there really a big shift towards more defence of, of Germany because the threat is seen to be more real? Well, the Zeitenwende, this shift in Germany's approach to security policy is, in my opinion, real, but it is slow. And it was especially really, it started with a bang with this speech by the Chancellor Olaf Scholz three days after the Russian invasion into Ukraine, where he said that these were changing times and we needed to change with them. And he announced this big fund for uh, defense spending. But then it was slow to start with. And then lots of people got incredibly frustrated. And I think that is a criticism that some people inside the sort of security defense community foreign policy analysts in Germany but also some of our allies have voiced especially over the first year uh, of the war in Ukraine that there was a lack of urgency that said I think that the the change is fundamental and profound and in the recent few months there has been a new impetus and this has everything to do with what is going on in America because Germany depends absolutely relies on American protection. So this isn't just about the question of helping Ukraine. This is about our own safety and the possibility, which now becomes more realistic, that Trump could become president again and the possibility that he might um, no longer want to spend so much money on Europe or absolute worst case scenario, no longer really commit to NATO, that really presents Germany with a very fundamental uh, problem and all of Europe. And that's why there really has been a new dynamic in the in the discussion about this. And Olaf Scholz has just gone to Washington to try and uh, motivate um, the Americans to to spend more on aid for Ukraine. But also the discussion in Germany is changing very quickly when you you see it in the newspapers. Um, so that's really important to point out that what's the domestic discussion in Germany about foreign policy is has changed dramatically because of what's happening in Russia and Eastern Europe and Ukraine. But now it has a whole new dynamic because of what's happening in the United States. 
Do you sense that's true Europe-wide as well? In other words, could a Trump presidency mean Europe and the European Union, which is obviously separate from NATO and the defence commitments, but the European Union could come closer together, could become perhaps more united, less awkward sometimes in taking decisions? I think that realistically, the Europeans, we very much depend on NATO. That said, there is a new discussion and a new dynamic within the EU as well on working together. I think in the short term, uh, a Trump presidency will bring Europe closer together. This is also very much a priority of the German government. What's also helpful and really makes me optimistic at the moment is the new government in Poland, because we are now seeing a real chance in rekindling the relationship between Germany and Poland, which was complicated over the last few years, to say the least. And there's now even talk about reviving an old idea of the Weimar Triangle, so cooperation within the EU between France, Germany and Poland, which in my view is exactly what we need. So that's encouraging. What's also encouraging is that What's happening both in Eastern Europe and now also in the US, it brings the United Kingdom and the EU closer together. I think quite dramatically, actually. Um, I've noticed this when the war in Ukraine started two years ago. The relationship between the UK and the EU was absolutely at a low point. A Brexit had happened. The um, transition period was over. Nobody had seen each other because of COVID for two years. The rhetoric in Britain about the European Union was, quite frankly, vile. At the same time, um, the frustration and also the lack of interest on the European side in anything to do with Britain was profound. And then Russia invaded, and that completely changed the conversation. And it made, I think, people on all sides realized how much we're still in the same boat and how, from a European perspective, how no matter how much we dislike Brexit, the United Kingdom is a very significant security player still, although there are also problems. And they have been very quick in their response to the aggression against Ukraine. And that imp impressed everybody. At the same time, there was a realization in uh, in the UK, even among people like Boris Johnson, who loved to talk about global Britain and the Indo-Pacific, suddenly it became clear that there is a problem, a very real problem, much, much closer to home. Now, if Trump is elected, or even now the fear that he could be elected does really, I think, motivate people, both in Britain and the EU, uh, to talk more to each other, to talk about cooperation, especially in the security and defense area. And that's very encouraging. And it's also what we need. That said, I think it's also important to see that it would be incredibly naive to say, well, Yes, that's um, awful if Trump gets elected, but there's a silver lining. Then the EU will just reorganize itself and uh, defend itself. All that takes time, and that's time we might not have. Isn't the part of this story simply that Britain and Germany in particular simply haven't spent enough on, uh, yes. on defence? That, that, that's basically it, isn't it? And the Americans are right about that. What's interesting to me as a German commentator who focuses on British politics is how Germany and Britain have some quite similar problems when it comes to defence. And the biggest problem of them all is underfunding. Um, and the second is also a lack of efficiency when it comes to spending the money they have. So whatever happens in the United States, I think there is now a realisation in both countries that this needs to change. But in the UK in particular, is also a question of funds. And if there is now an election coming, and if the Labour Party wins this election, they are 
committed to uh, to strong defence, and I have a very high opinion of the Shadow Defence Secretary, John Healy, who would become Britain's Defence Secretary. He's very committed to Ukraine. He's very um, interested in collaborating with Europeans, in, including Germany. But, I mean, the money has to come from somewhere. And given the state of the British economy and also the politics of Britain with the cost of living crisis, that's a problem. And that is something, again, in, in Germany, in Britain, everywhere, domestic politics and foreign policy are linked. And when you have a downturn in the economy and when people are struggling and there's a cost of living crisis, and then somebody tells you, actually, um, why do we have to spend so much money on Ukraine? Then some people might believe that. And that helps these uh, parties on the fringes who are effectively useful idiots. I'm sorry to be so clear. No, actually, I'm not sorry to be so clear. This helps the uh, the parties on the fringes, on the hard right and on the hard left, who are effectively Putin's useful idiots. I, I was really struck by the fact that so many commentators have suggested that Putin cannot defeat NATO or the West militarily, but can defeat them politically. In other words, if Article 5, as you're suggesting, were made redundant by something that he did and people just said, OK, well, we'll just let him have the Baltics because we can't do anything about it. I think nothing is more in Putin's uh, interest than a divided West, a divided NATO and a divided EU. This is why that is, has been a big success after the invasion of Ukraine, really the quite remarkable degree of unity within NATO and within uh, Europe to stick together in helping uh, Ukraine. The, the security of Ukraine and the security of the European members of NATO is not identical, but they are closely linked. Putin has got his own enablers and supporters within European democracies. Who are these people, Helene? Not all far-right parties within the European Union have the same position on European security and defence. They don't all agree on that. For example, in Italy, we have a government under Meloni who is very much in favour of supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression, whereas in Germany, you have the far-right party, the Alternative for Deutschland, which parrots Russian talking points and We also now have a new party in Germany, which was just created a month ago by the well-known hard-left politician Sarah Wagenknecht. And this is a party which in its its economic policy is very much on the left. But when it comes to culture and also immigration, it is very nationalist. And this party is very pro-Russian in its rhetoric. So both of these parties are fundamentally anti-Western and pro-Russian in their rhetoric. And that is really worrying because we've seen a lot of talk in recent months and and lots of demonstrations in Germany against the far right and against extremism. And that has been really heartening and uh, encouraging to see. But we need to talk not just about this one party, dangerous as it is, in my personal opinion. We also need to talk about why so many people are driven towards populist parties on the hard right and on the hard left. Um, The beauty of democracy is that people don't agree on everything and they debate freely on the pros and cons of every decision that is made, including foreign policy. And that is, I mean, that is the bedrock of our system and that's what we need to preserve. It also means that not everybody is going to agree on foreign policy and on questions of war and peace. And if you ask your 
average person, do you think it's good to buy weapons? Then that person is going to say no. And quite frankly, I totally understand the instinct. I'm part of a generation. I was born in 1981. It's part of a Western German family. So in terms of generation, that really hits the lottery. I mean, that makes me very lucky and means that I grew up surrounded by friends and safety and prosperity. And that was so such a given that people uh, took it for granted. And the whole, I would say, Western European, especially German policy towards Putin for a long time was this thinking that it was possible to to appease him. And uh, they did not expect that he would attack Ukraine, which is absurd given the fact that he'd already done it before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. As Helene von Bismarck points out, Article 5 of the NATO Charter says that an attack on one member state is an attack on all, and NATO is committed to respond by all means we deem necessary. But that's the catch. Donald Trump as America's commander-in-chief might deem necessary doing nothing much at all. The Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, suggested Trump's comments that he would encourage Russia to attack NATO members who don't spend more than 2% of GDP on defence, quote, undermines all our security. A total of 19 of 31 NATO members, including Germany and France, do not meet the 2% target. For a wider perspective on the strengths and weaknesses of NATO in this US election year, I'm joined by Peter Apps, author of Deterring Armageddon, a biography of NATO. Peter, from... Your knowledge of the history and operations of NATO, how secure would NATO be in the future, do you think, under a second Trump presidency? Because the Americans are obviously the linchpin of everything. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of NATO when it was first built in the late 1940s uh, was to tie together the United States and Europe. And um, ever since then, whenever there's been a crisis, it's usually been America that's called the shots. And I think regardless of whether we get a second Trump presidency, but particularly if we do, there's a feeling that the days in which Europe could be America's top priority are pretty much over. So even the Biden administration in Vilnius last year for the NATO summit was really clear that the sort of 80 to 100,000 troops they've had in Europe, that's the upper limit. They're not going to put any more there. And obviously, if we get Trump, then, um, you know, he's been starting to make noises both in his first term and, and again in the run up to, to the election that really sort of throw all of that into question. That is fascinating because, of course, Obama also had a tilt towards Asia, didn't he? So there's a long history within the Democratic Party, not just within the Republican Party and not just because Trump is a, sometimes a bit of an outsider, um, uh, that this 
idea that perhaps NATO will have passed its its peak as uh, an interest for the Americans. That seems to be across party lines, even if it's not always spoken about in those ways. Yeah, I mean, so there's been a there's been a slight irritation in Washington that has m- manifested itself in a bunch of different ways ever since the beginning about having to step up to defend Europe. So when Eisenhower became the first uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe in 1951, he told Congress that he reckoned the Americans would have to be in Europe for about 10 years. And by then, uh, the Europeans would be able to fill the gap. And he realized within about six months that that was probably never going to happen. And that kind of battle has been going on ever since. Um, Yeah, Obama definitely, you know, 2013, very keen to pivot to Asia. 2014, Vladimir Putin annexes Crimea, and they get dragged back into Europe again. So there's been this sort of seesaw the whole way through. But I think there is a real feeling this time around, I just got back from, from Southeast Asia, and... This time it's a permanent shift. You know, the China issue for the US is not going to go away. There's two schools of thoughts in, thought in Washington, I think, one of which is that by defending Europe uh, and particularly supporting Ukraine, you signal to the Chinese that the Americans have their allies' backs and that therefore you're helping deter an invasion of Taiwan. And that's very much the line that Biden administration has pushed. And then there's a growing line from people around Trump. Uh, it's a guy called Elbridge Colby who wrote Trump administration's uh, Pentagon strategy in 2018. And, and their position is that the US doesn't have enough resource to do that, that it's got to make tough choices. And that means dialing back in Europe, dialing back in the Middle East and prioritizing Asia. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, you talk to the French, you talk to the Germans, you know, you talk to, to an extent the European Commission, you know, they're getting to the point where they are realizing that they're being called up to fill that gap. They've never had to do that before. Um, and the last point, which I think is also something that NATO has never really dealt with before, is there's always been this assumption since the mid 50s that any war in Europe with the Russians would go nuclear within maybe two or three weeks. And so during the Cold War, you had about sort of two, three, four weeks supply of ammunition. Well, now Ukraine's shown that might go on for years. And that's why you're starting to see this talk about conscription, this talk about industrial warfare, building building artillery shells. Uh, looking at some of the things that have been going on in Germany recently and talking to some German experts, it, it, it is being taken seriously, particularly in Germany, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and even more than Germany, on, if you go further east, so Martin Herrem, who's the head of the Estonian military, um, talks in terms of Russia being able to sort of recharge enough to attack a NATO state within a year of fighting stopping in Ukraine. So, I mean, again, you know, these, you know, trying to judge an exact time frame, I think, is, is probably, you know, a hiding to not very much. But the degree to which the Russians have industrialized their military manufacturing capability in the last year has taken people by surprise. They're building 100 main battle tanks a month, which is more than they're losing in Ukraine. That's about two-thirds of the number that the Brits intend to build over the next decade. Um, For me, I think the real question is what happens with Taiwan. You know, if the Chinese decide to go into Taiwan, and again, lots of conversations about timescales there, which I don't think are particularly useful, but, you know, certainly it's it's seen as being a, a potential... I think the chances of the Russians having a crack at Eastern Europe simultaneously is is relatively high. And I was just in Taiwan, and they think they'll be safe until the 2030s because they think it'll take the Chinese military that long to actually be ready. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of different sort of estimates. I think what is clear is that whoever is very much in the interest of anyone who's going to launch an attack with Russia Russia into Eastern Europe or or China in Taiwan uh, to do so without warning if they can um, and grab whatever it is they're going to grab and then dare the rest of the world to do something about it so i think you know we're 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 definitely entering a decade of of danger a decade where we'll probably have you know some pretty scary moments and a decade in which there's quite a big amount of sort of retooling of how people think about military confrontation from where we were say you know five ten years ago 
Let me pick up that last point, because what we do know is is that only a minority of NATO countries are meeting the supposed required 2% of GDP spent on defence. We also know that both in Britain and Germany in particular, uh, people know and the government knows and they have said uh, that the army is too small, too weak and underfunded. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? We know we know what the problem is. It's lack of funding, lack of investment in the past. And we've got to go very quickly to catch up is the implication. Well, I mean, I think you know, the UK spends a phenomenal amount on defence. Um, you know, I think there are some pretty big questions about whether about how you spend money, efficiency of spending money, you know, what kind of military you want. So if you, you know, Boris Pistorius, when he's talking about enlarging the German military, he's talking about going to a, you know, potentially a, a sort of conscription-based system where they don't conscript that many people most years, but they've got the ability to dial up and dial down. Um, if you're looking at fighting the kind of war that they're fighting in Ukraine, we're talking about human beings, we're talking about artillery shells, we're talking about tanks, we're talking about drones. And there uh, there is other stuff going on, but those are probably the the really sort of big crunch points. That is very different to what the Brits have been spending their money on for the last 25, 30 and longer years. You know, we have an expeditionary military that's been designed to fight wars on the far side of the world. We've never really had a military optimized for continental warfare. So I think they're all quite different. I mean, if you go to, again, the the Baltic states, they're putting, you know, the Estonians putting like 3% of GDP into arming Ukraine. You know, leaving aside the money they're spending on their own defence. So you've got a bunch of countries in Eastern and Central Europe who regard the war that they are currently spending money on in, in Ukraine as being part of keeping Russia back. Right? So they think that by every every tank that's destroyed in Ukraine is a tank that can't cross the into, into Lithuania or Latvia or Estonia. So I think everyone conceptualises things very differently. I think the Brits, going back you know, well before the First World War, the British military struggles with the concept of dealing with a mass mobilization war in Europe. It feels very uncomfortable with that. You know, th- there are some real questions about what role we play. Again, really big questions about whether the United States also plays. You know, only two nuclear powers in Europe, us and France. If the US disappears off, that, that means that those two countries have quite a big kind of role in, in defending Europe. Um, so as I said, I don't think anything is inevitable at the moment except a lot of change and challenge, and certainly in the case of mainland European states, really quite significant investment in new things and a question over whether the Brits follow suit. I'm conscious that much of our conversation, although we is based on the notion that Trump brings uncertainty to all this, uh, much of this conversation we could be having whoever wins, whether it's Biden or Trump or even some, somebody else that hasn't hasn't started a campaign yet. These are problems which any American president and any European leaders are going to have to face in the next year or two. The thing about Trump is he's extremely unpredictable. And therefore, there is a school of thought that says that no one is going to risk invading another significant chunk of the world while Trump is president, because no one knows what he would do. You know, therefore, paradoxically, if he comes in, we probably won't see anything particularly unpredictable during that four-year period, or maybe at the very end, that last year. Um, you know, if Biden comes back in, then I think, again, you've got probably a window towards the end of his presidency. I mean, the, what my one takeaway is that if these imaginary wars are going to happen, and I think they are probably going to happen on a US presidential timetable, they will happen when Chinese and Russian leadership believe that whoever is in power in Washington is least likely to intervene to protect Taiwan or Europe. 
Um, and actually, that's, you know, if you, the history of NATO is, you know, almost it's running US presidential timetables ever since the beginning. The reason that the, it was created in 1949 rather than 1948 was there was an election in 1948 and they didn't want NATO to be an election issue. Every four years since, this has always been the way we, way we run things. What is interesting from what you're saying is that everybody in the United Kingdom knows that the First World War began in 1914 and the Second World War began in 1939. And the Americans came in in 1917 and 1941, which was after a presidential election in both in both cases. So in other words, it's not as if everything is structured around that. But that is these are the presidential election realities that things may happen at a certain point in the cycle. The US has a main character energy that, you know, no one else really kind of gets. And I think, you know, we in the UK are desperate to be the kind of, you know, the hero of both the past and the future. And I think it looks less likely that that is the case this time around. Um, you know, the question is always going to be, you know, what does the US do? What does Germany do? That be a, you know, hundred, you know, the, the Russians are building 100 tanks a month. The Germans could outbuild that. The Germans could outbuild that pretty quickly, should they so wish, and everybody knows it. You know, the other meta-narrative of the last 200 years is about German leadership in Europe, right? And that is unquestionably going to be one of the sort of big things. One of the interesting things about writing this book is that it's, to an extent, it's just a prologue to what is a really, really interesting, but also quite potentially alarming, uh, you know, period of history between now and 2049, the 100th anniversary of NATO. Also, the hundredth anniversary of, 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 of Mao winning in China and Taiwan becoming, you know, a breakaway province. You know, that twenty-five years from here is probably the meaty bit. Well, that gives us something to look forward to. I was going to uh, end with uh, pointing out that we've got our own awkward squad within NATO too. I mean, we've got uh, Viktor Orban and so on, and ho the holding up of Swedish membership and the difficulties of the, of the European Union itself, uh, which is a slightly different story, but also connected to this. So, are you confident that there could be a reasonably united European response to any further aggression on the Russian part? I mean, I think whether I'm confident or not, it's probably not, not going to change the price of fish. But the Poles and the Bolts are definitely not that confident of that. And they are deliberately playing, you know, so each one of those countries, you know, the Nordics, all of the countries that have, have their own bilateral relationship with the United States, which involves lots of special forces, cooperation and that kind of thing. So uh, uh, George Robertson in, in 2001 obviously triggered Article 5 with a vote. You know, so the North Atlantic Council voted to trigger Article 5 after the 9-11 attacks. And one of the questions that that raises is whether you could get a vote through again under similar circumstances if the Russians had, say, particularly if they'd taken a chunk of, say, you know, forest block in Latvia and they weren't giving it back. Theresa May's government thought about trying to trigger Article 5 over the Novichok attack in Salisbury and realised pretty damn fast they weren't going to be able to. Um, so the question is whether you could get an Article 5 vote through the North Atlantic Council. The second question is whether you need to. A whole bunch of Eastern and Central European countries will tell you, read the North Atlantic Charter, North Atlantic Treaty, rather. It doesn't actually say you have to vote. Um, I think there is definitely an awareness that NATO might not be joining the fight from the get-go. There's been an assumption under the Biden administration that's, that the chief US general in Europe, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, also the head of UCOM, the European Command, would be the guy in charge. Obviously, Trump can tell him not to be. Trump could tell him not, you know, Trump could remove that. Uh, in which case, who ends up in charge? It would be a very interesting question. Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of Europe is always a Brit. That's a NATO job. You know, is it going to be a senior German general who, you know, where are you going to find your kind of resource from? And if you talk to people, you know, in Eastern and Central Europe, you know, they talk about kicking out countries that won't play from structures like the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. Uh, and it's why some of these sort of forward core HQs and divisional HQs in Eastern Europe are important. 
there's an assumption that you could build something. But the truth is, if the Russians want to seize something, they're probably going to seize it overnight. They're probably going to have it by the following morning. And the odds of NATO getting its act together on day one is is mixed. There's lots of questions about how you do things. I think the big question for me for both Russia and China is if they decide to grab a bit of Taiwan or the Baltic states or anyone else, do they choose to strike US forces and NATO forces, so those enhanced forces, on, on day one? and thereby bring them into the war, what the Japanese did in 1941 when they struck Pearl Harbor? Or do they do what Hitler did in 1939, just go after the countries they want and see if the others respond? So I think there's, again, you know, lots of different scenarios, and I think it's important to play them out because it gives you interesting thoughts, but you immediately realize you've forgotten to take something into account. So it's it's risky, and you know, if you are Mrs. Chen, who I met last a couple of weeks ago down on the foreshore in Taipei, or her equivalent on the eastern flank in Estonia, you know, it's starting to get a bit, feel a bit, you know, a bit worrying. And, you know, this isn't a computer game. These are real lives that get that get wrecked. Real, you know, there's a tendency in Britain, particularly because we have this sort of, you know, veneration of dad's army to get all a bit excited about these discussions over things. You know, it's mainland European wars are pretty horrible and they're very horrible people for people who live in mainland Europe. You know, it's worth taking a step back and sort of, you know, it's quite, it's really quite amazing that we've wound up in this place. And it doesn't say great things for, you know, the way in which we're running the world. NATO celebrates its 75th birthday this year. What has held the alliance together is not merely fear of aggression. It's the sense that Europe and the United States must never repeat the mistakes of the past. In 1914 and 1939, American presidents hoped they could avoid being drawn into wars in faraway countries on the other side of the Atlantic. The arrival of American troops in 1917 and 1941 proved that a threat to European security is also a threat to the United States itself. But now, can Europeans trust Donald Trump to avoid the mistakes of the past? Can Americans? I'm Gavin Esler. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. It was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parra, and social media by Jess Harvin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production. <laughs>